Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest today. We have Horace Dedu of Asimco joining us at Arc Invest, and Horace is really someone I followed for a number of years since, wow, at least 2010 when he started writing about Apple. There are a number of firsts we can credit to, to Horace's work. Uh, I think he was the first to really focus on Apple as a very distinct company with a highly misunderstood and arguably undervalued business model. Horace is the first to really focus on the kind of relationship between CapEx and, and Apple's future, especially the, the coming year productions and establishing that relationship. We focus a lot on Tesla at Arc, and I recall that Horace wrote extensively on why manufacturing was going to be the key differentiator and a key competency to be had. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very odd focus when I first heard it. But lo and behold, about 18 months later, Elon went on the conference call and became rah-rah and all about manufacturing. So I remember that very vividly. And most recently, Horace's work has been focused on micromobility, a term which he helped coin. And, you know, as Sam has uh, followed his work very closely, uh, is really the first person who started talking about this latest trend to scooters and bikes. So I have Horace and Sam Corus, our, our mobility and energy analyst at ARC, and mostly hand it over to Sam since this is his focus area. So I have to help facilitate this conversation. Or Horace, welcome to ARC. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a very, very kind introduction, by the way. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the capex story as something uh, you know people don't free, don't remember that very well but it's it's one of those things i'm proud of yes and, and if, i missed actually i mean you have focused on apple for so long you became almost known as the the you know most notable independent apple analyst of course you also was the first to float the apple as a valuation based upon uh, i guess a recurring revenue model right the subscription, subscription model yeah hardware is a subscription and so on and it's been a wonderful journey and i I have many fond memories. I'm actually here in New York for this Apple event that's just about to, st you know, uh, drop next uh, tomorrow. Actually, that's great, and I think we'll dive into manufacturing a bit. But before we do, we're talking about micro mobility. Can you just give us how you're defining it, and then how you came across the topic? Micro mobility is a term I started using in late 2017 at a conference, actually, called the Micro Mobility Summit in Copenhagen, and I was looking for a way to synthesize at the time, the, the the scooters weren't a thing in late 2000. I know it's a long time ago. It's a year ago. But at the time, there were bike sharing in China. There were e-bikes coming up as potential shared objects, but also personal objects that we had, low-speed electric vehicles. People were suggesting three, four-wheel uh, alternative models. And and so I, I thought it's not about any one of these things, but rather looking at the whole low end of, of transportation, personal transportation that was increasingly becoming electrified, shared, and possibly intelligent in some way, although not necessarily on the vehicle, but in the network. 
And it wasn't the first use of the word micromobility. It was just that it was uh, not applied in this context. It had been applied to sort of just uh, small vehicles. And just as a definition, I, I really try to come up with a very succinct definition. And, and I, I simply uh, argue that it's a class of vehicles that's under a certain weight. In Europe, by the way, you have classifications, the L classification as opposed to M classification of vehicles. And M is this traditional car. And then you have above that buses, trucks, and so on. But the, the so-called L category includes a lot of what we think of micromobility in two, three, four wheels. But uh, generally, they're not cars. And so that was one of the ways to think about it is maybe using that European classification. But I decided to just use a weight because it's a lot easier to remember and it's a lot easier to sort of think about. So I chose almost arbitrarily, but there's, a, there's some reason to it, a 500 kilograms, which is about 1,100 pounds. And the reason was that I could not find any cars that were built to that uh, weight, except for the Fiat uh, 500 of 1956, which uh, was 499 kilograms, that tiny little car. And I thought that's not going to happen these, you know, today. And so I, I picked that as a threshold, 500 kilos. And now what can we do with that? If you give that as a design brief to engineers, to marketers, to entrepreneurs and say, what can you do with 500 kilograms? You know, then you begin the conversation. So, so that's how I started. And a few caveats about it being, you know, more for utility use as opposed to recreational use. That, that way it excludes some ATVs and other things. And so I think that's kind of a good way. Bikes have been around since before cars. Batteries, lithium ion batteries have been around since the early 90s. What's happening right now that's leading to such massive adoption? Uh, what did you look at that let you know, I think this is a disruptive technology. This isn't just some fad that's happening. It's not the Segway. It's not yeah. the hoverboard. Well, you even had batteries like we, we had. You mentioned the Segway. We had these hoverboards. We had various scooters, consumerized scooters with, with which, you know, kick scooters. But what really changed were sharing networks, which really probably three years ago with with bike share in China began with uh, the idea of having a GPS transmitter or receiver on a bike with you know very low power required for that, uh, and that could be charged somehow through even a solar panel. So that that was a breakthrough. Secondly, the electric drive of these vehicles is getting cheaper all the time, partly because of the lithium battery increased production and, and decreased cost curve. And now also with the motor technology actually being much of it, uh, you know, I guess uh, stolen if, or, 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 you know, taken from the automotive sector. A lot of the biggest names in uh, electric drive for e-bikes today are tier one German manufacturers like Bosch yep. and Bosch, uh, Yamaha, Shimano. Well, Shimano is making uh, more of the tr uh, transmission, but we have Broza in, in, involved as well. ZF is getting involved. So there's a lot of a motor, you know, there are 20, 30 motors in a car nowadays, you know, but one of those motors is enough uh, to drive a, a bike, you know, sufficiently, you know, adjusted for this. And uh, it's remarkable that we have these borrowing and stealing or, or, or just put it, picking up off the shelf technologies that had been in consumer products from phones to, to cars and reassembling them into this kind of a shared vehicle. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating how quickly it's happening. Well, I think that's also interesting. These tier one players are not being disrupted. You know, they're the enablers of this technology. So when we're looking at micromobility, who is getting disrupted in this space? 
Well, so I'm careful with the use of the word disruption because I went, at first I went and studied with Clay back in the 90s when he was writing the book. And also I, I spent three years at his institute. So I'm very sensitive to the word. I actually try to also rethink of it uh, in the context of Apple because there it was misunderstood as well, given that Apple did not make a low-end product, but it made a made a, a low-end computer, which was a pocket computer, but mostly created a market as opposed to sort of low-end disrupting it. But y- when you look at this is exactly the crux of the matter. When you look at micromobility, is this about really taking trips away from cars or miles or dollars, whatever you want to measure the market with, or is it more about creating its own demand? It's a whole new niche, perhaps. And often disruptors do more of this creation stuff, especially with technologies, as opposed to, you know, low end only, like in maybe in retail, you don't do a lot of innovation in, except in the low end and cost structures. But in, in, in technologies, you sort of mostly get going by, by creating a new market for yourself. And so when you look at scooter data today, scooter sharing data, you know, 20 million rides in one year from two companies. And that's a lot faster than the car sharing networks got going. And when you look at what those people are doing, they're not really substituting. All of those are trips that wouldn't have gotten taken or wouldn't have been taken. And so when I look at this and I think about it's generally a consumption creation is a victimless crime. It's a victimless disruption initially, right? You're sort of competing against non-consumption. You're competing against no trips. And so it, it's it's generally a you know a, a, a positive thing. It may not attract an incumbent because it still requires you to have a cost structure that is that is too low for for them and then a, a profit model that is too far to reach to. But when I think about this, initially we do have some data showing that the higher end of the micromobility meaning the e-bikes and, and above, they are competing more effectively with transit. And I think you see some of that also with bike share in New York, with the city bike, sort of taking some transit rides away. And and initially, at least that's the case. Now, if we look at a long term, possibly if the vehicle gets better, and that's what that's where the flip occurs, right? The, the, the transition away from very low end non-consumption more to cannibalizing existing co- incumbents, occurs as the product really matures and improves rapidly. So again, if I were to use a phone analogy, initially these were phones and we use them for messaging, but now we're using them for more traditional computing. There may never get to the point where there's substitutes for spreadsheets and, and PowerPoint, but but as you can see, they're eating into 80% of the of the heart of the matter. So, so most of my research recently has been trying to uh, quantify what the opportunity is, both in terms of non-consumption and in terms of substitution. And, and indeed, to ask the question, who might be the ones who will benefit and who might, who might suffer? It, it's a bit weird when you look at the automotive industry because the OEMs are one thing, but you see so much of the values in the tier ones or below. And, and there's just there's a lot of interesting plays going on. Like LG, as you know, is now entering as a tier one, even though it was never really in that business before. So you have potential substitution at the tier one level, but perhaps you may have a motor's being sustaining to tier ones, but if they're doing a lot of work with, let's say, transmissions or power steering or hydraulics, that's going to go away with electric. So it's 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 still not clear to me who's going to win this. And I think, I mean, just comparing cars to scooters brings up the interesting point. Uh, when we're looking at electric vehicles, range anxiety, it's a real thing for the consumer. Yeah. But in reality, it's almost never applied because 
most people commute a short distance. And then when you scale that actually down to the micro mobility level, it's even more so you look at vehicle miles traveled, and it's almost all skewed towards, you know, zero to five mile trips, even even less than that. So how does that play into it. Exactly. So when you start to quantify the market, it, the question always is, how do you, what, what do you measure? You measure dollars, miles, trips, time. These are the ones I've, ta- I've started with. But then you start to s- quantify them in buckets or bins. And and the, the, when I look at these, the, the distances to me are fascinating. The fact that, that the short distance trips, so let's say we have one mile bucket. So the, the one to 15 mile buckets, okay, so th- those are, are, are already about half of the trips in the United States, even more probably in the global scale. And then th- th- there's this thing I'm playing with is the point of parity. So in all the dimensions, trips, miles, dollars, and minutes, where's the point of parity where, where half the trips are or half the market is above that point and half the market is below that point? So let's say let's say dollars. It turns out to be even closer to zero because a lot of the dollars for short distances, as you know, when you take a taxi ride, you know the first mile is the most expensive mile. Generally, the the short distances capture more value on the per mile basis, and so you're seeing you're seeing. Uh, so if you're tracking dollars now, if you if you are a, if you are an autonomy guy and you're trying to focus on where well, where's time going to be. Again, it's it might be that that skewed a little bit further out, but it's still not going to be over twenty miles. So there's an interesting question about what happens to the short distance because, if, if, you know, urban planners have been saying this for a long time. A lot of people, if they took, got out of their cars for short distances and took trains or, or, or bikes, the world would be a better place. I and mean, that's a wishful thought. But it, it's to me, it's, it's actually once you make that solution really accessible, because the problem before was you had to manage finding uh, the, the tool you needed. You need the bike. I got to have it with me. The way I talk about shared bikes and shared scooters, it's like the camera in your phone. It's the best camera because it's the one you always have with you. So the best tra- mode of transport is the one that's easiest to access. And what's happening with cars is that they used to traditionally be the most accessible. There's always one near you. You have one at home, you have one at work, and it's always parked near you. But as as congestion increases, as cities become more and more dense, and also as you know, the world is urbanizing more and more, we're finding that the car is under a lot of pressure. So especially in urban environments, we're going to find them less accessible. And in their place, we're going to see these urban micro vehicles. And then we can see the potential of, of substitution. So it, it's fascinating. I, I I've have some presentations I'm going to be giving over the next few weeks or months to quantify the opportunity to think about substitution to think about just how many trillions of dollars are at stake. And I'm not ex- exaggerating. There really are trillions of dollars at stake in the low end and to see how much of that is addressable. So yeah, I have a conference coming up in January in, on the 31st. So just uh, love to have people come in and debate that that question. You know, wh- when I first looked at it, it, it had all the smell of disruption, which is it's low end, right? You're, you're on two wheels, you can't carry much. All the, all the popular critique is this can't possibly be a real right. thing. And of course, the, the, one of the metrics you mentioned, the per trip data showed that in terms of trips, it was really actually very high for this format. So Sam went back and we we're like, what, what about a per mile data? Because a lot in the US, I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners do 20, 30 minute, maybe an hour commutes. You know, a lot of the you know, just Apple folks commute from San Francisco to, yeah. to Cupertino. And that's, you know, at least ima- imagining that it doesn't seem viable for a scooter. Right. So, 
it seems like there's a bit of a gap between the, the trip data, which I think is supportive of scooters and micromobility, and the kind of distance data, which is, especially in the US, more suggestive of you kind of still need cars. Where, where have you landed yeah. on well, that, that thought? Here's the thing about data. It's it, You got to be careful with it. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of census data, and I've been collecting, I've been trying to collect what is called trip distance distribution. And it's a log normal function, by the way, which is fascinating in its own right. And I've collected, and I was just going through this, so my flight over 57 different modes, okay? And this includes everything from aircraft, walking, and different cities, by the way. I have UK versus Switzerland. And you look at all these distributions, and you're sort of thinking about how to characterize a mode and to ask this question. Well, you can't walk. You wouldn't walk for 10 miles, nor would you fly for 20 so these seem to be quite quite distant. But the funny thing about the car is that it actually will be used for, you know, one mile trips as well as, you know, 1000 mile trips potentially, right? People do 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 these things. So it's a very flexible and it has a, a pattern to that. That's really quite a challenge to meet. Now, the point, your point is that, yes, yeah, so when you look at trips, by the way, trips are not a whole day. You usually take three trips a day. Mm-hmm. So there's a circuit as well. So you don't go back and forth necessarily, but you'll take one trip, then another one and sort of make a triangle. And so that's a very hard thing to substitute as well with with multi-modes. So generally, I'm very cautious about making claims. Yes, there are a multitude, billions of trips that can be micromobilized, but they're part of a fiber of or fabric of daily activities that we can't really necessarily separate out. Which is why, again, the beginning will be all about really going out and making new trips happen. A lot of the the scooter data out of Santa Monica was like people would go there and then take the uh, take a micro uh, you know scooter for for short distances around the city, but then get back in their car to go home somewhere. And the reason was was very clear because it, moving your car from A to B in in a s- small place like that was onerous due to the parking and traffic issues. So it's funny how if all the places in the world, if you would have asked me three years ago, where would micromobility take off? The last place would be Los Angeles because it's the most car-friendly place, right? It's the most car-saturated place. And it seemed like behavior, and everyone tells me that Americans are never going to do this. But it turned out that that was where people started, not because, again, it was fighting the car. It was because it was working with the car. And in Europe, the story is more like working with transit and trying to figure out the the way that you know you you know if you're in in Amsterdam and you have a car usually you drive to the edge of the city you park in a special parking lot and then you take the train in now we might see substitution happening at that level right you see people using it for half the journey that normally they would have had before or creating new journeys so i wouldn't worry too much looking only at what's what's happening today a lot of new modalities of transport create their own demand this is another historic fact you looked at you know the world before the car it looked like there was no demand for the cars there's a there's a there's a funny saying is like you don't measure demand for a bridge by by counting how many people swim across a river it's once you build the bridge people cross it so when you build micromobility people will use it and later much later they'll start thinking about getting rid of that option they already have in the form of a car that's an option they they still want to hold on to and then i think as you're saying the multimodality definitely creates a huge opportunity for a company or multiple companies that could control the whole transportation stack and so when you're looking at the companies that are out there now 
what really do you see as the business opportunity? We've looked, I mean, you have Uber and Lyft that are, they do benefit from the network effect. But if all of a sudden you have companies just pouring scooters onto the street, we've seen Ofo in China, they've scaled back Mm. just because they've oversaturated with bikes. Right now, a lot of them charge similar to taxis. You get the upfront cost to use it and then teens of cents per mile. Does this transition to subscription model? What do you kind of see as the competitive dynamics and business models to emerge? There's two parts. The first is what about the existing players out there which are investable, which are interesting? So the OEMs that we talked a little bit about, they're having a tr- they're having trouble with this segment. They, they, you know, some some of them may want to invest a little bit, but when I've spoken to a few of them, they really scratch their heads about micromobility. I mean, they have lots of engineers who would want to take a, a crack at it, but they have they can't sell them, they can't operate them. So they're they're not sure what they can do with this. I mean, especially in Germany, where it's like electric bikes are such a huge phenomenon. The, the workers are coming to work with electric bikes and management cannot figure out what to do with these things. Right? <laughs> Literally, their their own family, they themselves may ride it to work, but they can't figure out that they're in the same business. Oh, why not? What's the problem? Well, it's it's partly because, it went, again, it goes back to manufacturing. It's like, you know, you're sitting on a huge, huge sunk cost and also a sunk sort of model, if you will, of the business model. You have distribution question. You have what Clay calls resources, processes, and priorities, your RPP or RPV. It's like you, you, these are not compatible with this new micro mode, right? So it's like, you know, you, your engineers would design a great scooter, the best in the world. But then what do you do? You go to the dealer with it and say, please sell this as part of a, what, a bundle with a car? I, <laughs> how do you make it work? And especially since the dealer wants to get some recurring revenue from servicing it. When the logic that may make sense would be, hey, we don't sell the scooter. We just put it on the street. And you have to be more like a mobile network operator then. And then if you are one of those, like like a bird, and then you start to ask yourself, do I sink a lot of dollars in engineering a better vehicle? And that's the that's the dilemma they're facing right now. It's in many ways what Apple did. And that, that's why I was so attracted to Apple as a, as, a, as a business model is that they see the whole problem and say, we're in this business and we're, we're not going to shy away from manufacturing or from the, our engineering or from design or from software or from services if we have to deliver on an experience. And so in, in a sense... The challenge for the incumbents is that they've just driven so hard at the goal for a hundred years that they've optimized everything around that. And now you're being asked to be suboptimal on so many dimensions. Now, what's interesting, what I thought was fascinating in the last year was that Uber got involved by buying Jump and that Lyft got involved by buying Motivate. Now, these might be sort of a little bit of an overreaction that they sort of panicked and they said, we got to be in this. But also it might be part of a logical theory that, you know, says that, well, this is actually, uh, this is sustaining to them. They're in the ride delivery business and these vehicles deliver rides probably more economically in the low end than cars do, which also you have to pay a lot to acquire the driver. So you have this interesting opportunity sort of to deliver on their brand promise in a very rapid sort of uh, quick way. and, and, And they got into it through an acquisition. Didi in China also invested in Ofo. So they would see, by the way, on a daily basis, they could watch the zero to three kilometer. This is at least is what I've heard. And I wish I could be more specific. As, I don't even remember who. I, maybe it was from directly from the horse's mouth. But the zero to three kilometers was disappearing in China for, for the rideshare guys. And it was eaten by Ofo and Mobike. Now, when you, when you, again, when you look at a log normal, you see zero to three is actually a big, 
big chunk of your business. So you kind of have to do something. Whereas a car company doesn't measure things that way. They see unit shipping, right? And so they don't feel the pain from that for a long, long time, as we talked about. And that's the essence of disruption is like, what is the competitor response to this? So yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a dynamic here at work which is f- just classic textbook disruption happening, and and it's even it's a dilemma precisely because you see it happening, and you're a manager in these firms, and you cannot do anything about it, even though you know what's going to happen. It's 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 deer in the headlight syndrome, and I don't want to put any there's there's a sort of a, you have to be humble about this and sort of I'm not sure I would do any different if I was in that in that position. In fact, I was at Nokia for a long time, and so. To us, it was a very challenging thing to deal with disruption, and, and, and it's 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 as human beings, you know, we have a flaw in our genes that doesn't prevent, permit us to solve this. But what happens typically is an outsider comes in. Uh, in this case, we have a lot of money flowing into from from venture capital into this segment. I still think it's very early days. You know, scooter guys are one year old, bike guys are like two to three years old. Lime already pivoted more than once, probably, you know, going from bikes to e-bikes to scooters, you know, and, and maybe maybe there's still more to come. Sometimes using the phone analogy, I think, you know, are we at the BlackBerry era or are we at the candy bar phone or the Razor? My, you know, if anybody remembers the micro- Motorola Razor or or even, even earlier, are we at the PDA uh, era where, you know, Palm Pilot was introducing a, a pocket quote-unquote computer. It's it's so early, it's hard to know how fast. The, the one thing I am tracking, and I'm, I'm looking for all the data to kind of measure these things and see what the trajectories are. The one data, it's I have it in this micromobility.io website where you can see it, is the trajectory on a, on a log scale of rides taken. And you compare Lyft with Bird and Lime and, and Uber, for four, four, all these four guys with four letters each in their names, but they're growing really, really fast. And the scooter guys are much faster. In fact, they're probably the fastest if you were to assume that that's your market measure. Some of the fastest pr- platforms out there uh, historically. So then I think that's a good question is right now, the US is almost six months into this, I would say. A lot of people are still waiting for winter to occur. And we're seeing rapid adoption in very specific geographies. What does it really take for this to spread out yeah. and become more widely adopted? Well, you can look at China and, and, and Europe, not for scooters, but you can look at the e-bikes and bikes. And Europe, I know more, I, I know a little bit better. We had already several iterations of bike share in Europe. And what what I think has happened, especially to understand the the, the seasonal question, is that you, you, it's not what you might think. It's not cold that deters people. It's wet with water. It's it's rain. Even in the summer, you have huge huge uh, reduction in utilization due to rain. You have so so cold is is not going to be a problem. You you do have safety that's going to be an issue, mostly because regulators will step in. And it, it require helmets and and uh, and better and and when you look at these things and you say okay we've got problems with these we've got problems with weather we've got problems with let's say infrastructure and charging we've got problems with operating with cities and so on but these all become opportunities because someone is going to drive really hard at the problem and and they they will discover something and that's what's really exciting is that you know if you go back to early cars it was the same thing they had all kinds of problems there was no infrastructure it was they were unreliable unsafe 
they didn't have roofs either, so they were they had trouble with the weather. And 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 yet and yet we overcame. You know, lighting systems, safety systems, traffic systems, all these things. It took much longer, I think, than it will take now. But I don't see those things which are now seen as drawbacks to micromobility as really being showstoppers. They're going to actually cause people to be inventive and will will you know really really drives i I give you one example in the safety domain abs is coming to e-bikes and 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 abs is is again old technology for cars came to motorcycles much later but it's already commoditized in motorcycles so now they're adapting motorcycle abs to to e-bikes and you actually need to be a lot less powerful to 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 be there and so we have a lot of ABS systems coming to bikes now. And, and uh, so that improves safety quite a bit. Then we're going to see lighting systems, helmet systems, so much so that I believe, you know, some of the safety aspects will become actually drivers for adoption because you'll be, you know, insurance will be coming as well. You know, all kinds of different insurances for, for, for micromobility. When I look at the problems, I see opportunities. And, and I think there's enough interest now, and there's clearly potential to, to, to increase adoption. Plus, you have a lot of capital thrown at the problem that it, w- it will get solved. And I think to dive in deeper on one infrastructure problem that spans micro to uh, electric vehicles, everyone points to charging. For electric vehicles, a lot of reports out there say this is a bottleneck. Again, I think we're in the same boat. We see this as a huge opportunity. Yeah. I think in India, it's something like one and a half million electric rickshaws, and they have 425 public charging stations. Mm-hmm. So people are doing this at home. For scooter companies, they're paying $5 for people to take these home and charge them when it really costs you know, 10 cents to charge this. So $4.90 to just incentivize someone to go charge this. Yep. I think there's a lot of history, and I, you've, you've looked at this before. How does the infrastructure evolve for charging? Oh, absolutely. So again, to me, charging is one of these things that if you ask bike, so I'll give you a quick anecdote. So when China got started with 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 regular pedal, shared pedal bikes, I was puzzled why they didn't go to electric. I mean, this seemed like a much, much nicer product from the user point of view. Well, the answer was that it's very hard when you have a fleet of millions to deal with charging and they decided not to. Now, Jump, on the other hand, has, this is not, there was no way to pedal a scooter. So you you had to do only, but they figured it out with crowdsourcing. Now, why could China have done crowdsourcing for fleets of bicycles? Well, partly because of pricing. Now, the pricing was so low and they were really driving towards another key metric, which was, you know, we want people to sign up and we want people to use it. So they were focused on getting the user numbers because that's what they sold to their investors. Whereas the American model or, or bird in particular said we were driving towards utilization, but we also want to drive towards a certain revenue model and, and unit economics had to be very good. And, and also the, the user was much more willing to pay because they were essentially being delivered energy. And so they were given power and they were willing to pay for power. In China, you were given access and you're willing to pay for access, but you have to supply power. So you see how already the, the, you have a sort of a, a orthogonal approach. So what, what's what's interesting about charging is that there's still many more innovative ways to deal with this. Now we we've seen the crowdsourcing of of charging, but there could be other things where you you park it to a certain location and there's a charger, with sort of a very simple charger compared to what cars need, 
everything that applies to micromobility considered to cost 10% of what it applies to to macro or, or, or automobility. So, you know, you could see charges and you could see these charges also be incentives for users to charge. You know, you're going to be given a discount from your trip if you park it and charge it. There could be also incentives from real estate, you know, so that you have an attractor by saying we're going to pay you to bring it here and so on. There, there are ways to to use economics, essentially, to create incentives. So I think these are the kind of innovations, really. It's not going to be technological invention, but it's going to be a business model innovation where people will figure out ways to create incentives so that the bikes end up either being properly, or I shouldn't say bikes, but vehicles should be and end up being charged. Uh, and and that will drive its own parallel universe of, of charging infrastructure that that sort of the car industry sort of has this problem of of deadlock between waiting and and driving at the problem and and so you know Tesla drove at it uh, Europeans are waiting and and so it's still a problem to do on a global scale but in this in this case with with scooters you know you're seeing people just like plowing ahead figuring out new ways of doing it and and really social engineering a solution which i think is really exciting i have some ideas on how this will go i think it'll it'll involve real estate it'll involve uh, potential shops that that will uh, will offer incentives for for charging so that they can attract traffic and so on and and that'll get worked on i think the business model is super interesting just cuz as you said you know this is really the first inning, we're not even sure what to make of it yet. Companies are still trying to figure it out. Mm. And then this was actually the first thing that James mentioned to introduce you was looking at manufacturing. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for how that interplays one with the innovation, also with the business models. And we were discussing this a bit earlier, but would love to hear kind of how you're thinking about how manufacturing comes into this micromobility space. Right. So, you know, at the end, if if I'm right about micromobility, we're going to be needing tens and hundreds of millions of these vehicles. Uh, the already that's having an impact in the supply chain for cycling. We're seeing a, some impact in the battery supply chain as well, because you know when you're dealing with that volume, even though these the battery pack on a scooter is very small, but on a good e-bike, it can be as much as one kilowatt hour. So, but still, it will take like. 80 bikes to make one Tesla, right? So it's so yet there there will be some issues with with supply chain and capacity. In China, historically, manufacturing has been very flexible in terms of scaling, and and so that's what everyone expects. But we might see some pushback due to tariffs nowadays. In fact, that's already kicking into Europe now. Anti-dumping laws are in effect on e-bikes, so people are starting to move. With production to say Thailand or Bulgaria or something closer. So we'll see how that plays out. But the the manufacturing in general is in, you you have to look at it whenever you're dealing with scale. And this happened with phones, and we re, you know we had to realize that this was not an outsourceable problem. And if you wanted to do scale, you need to have some degree of integration with the supply chain all the way through manufacturing. What I think will happen now that's interesting is to some degree, we'll see some people become more vertically integrated into this space, right? So I think Bird is already doing their own vehicle. And I think all the other scooter makers are going to be looking at more engineering their own vehicle. They, they see the benefit, by the way, by the way to think about it is the more you spend on R&D, the more you reduce your SG&A in a sense, because the, 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 that's where your operating costs are. 
And so that's a trade-off that historically they've, you know, being so fast, the R&D takes a longer time. And so they've kind of coming out of the gate, they didn't have a lot of R&D, but they are going to ramp that up. And then increasingly, because the, the supply chain might be long, they might need to bring more, more focus on to, onto that to make sure that they can deliver the market quicker. The dynamics are, there's a lot of kind of rush to market going on here. In China, it was even more so. I, I don't know if you know this, but back in the heyday of Ofo, which was like, what, a year ago, <laughs> the, the, it was Foxconn actually came in. Foxconn or Hanhai actually invested in or or somehow got into a JV somehow. I think it was a JV where they wanted to become a, a sort of a core manufacturing partner for, for one of the Chinese bike makers. And probably that didn't go so well. But the, generally, you, you can see already that the at that time, the two ends of the spectrum kind of from operators... I think of I think of uh, as bike operating companies or, or scooter companies as kind of the mobile network operators, and then you have the device makers in the middle, and then now we're seeing the components as well. And then well, how is this value chain going to evolve? In the case of phones, what we ended up with with is is the operating system kind of directing it with the Android case, but also on the hardware side, Apple directing things from its point of view. But the operators sort of were just in the background. It didn't disappear, but they were not relevant to the platform story. Now, in this case, we got the first movers are operators because they have to deliver service. Are they going to be the dog or the tail? You know, who's wagging who? And, and, and will devices start to become interesting again on that side, right? And the car business is yet another story, right? We had over the years got completely gutted as far as their, their you know, there became more and more brands and less and less. A lot of the R&D happens in the supply chain. And, and so it, this is what's fascinating. You know, as a business analyst, as a student of Christensen, you know, this is where you start to really sharpen your pencil, try to figure out how this will play out. I don't have all the answers. I'm just trying to sh- see where to look, right? And, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful area to look at. It's happening in so, so fast and it's in real time. So yeah, it's about as exciting as you get it. It gives me a lot of deja vu of the old days in the phone business, or even before then in the PC world back in the you know 80s and 90s when that was getting going. And so it feels very much like that again. Yeah, Horace, uh, you, earlier you referenced, I think we've been kind of talking about micromobility and you said, if you're right, I feel like you have an evolving thesis on that. Maybe it would be helpful for our listeners if you just explicitly describe what you so far believe is most probable will happen and why it's an interesting opportunity. So just to... So the way I began it is by drawing an S-curve for the fleet size of the, all the world's shared micro vehicles. So imagine that is a quantity we can measure. You know, there, there used to be networks, meaning how many cities had bike share. Then I started to count vehicles. And then and then when China came, came on stream, there was a huge spike and the S-curve looked like it was going vertical. Maybe that's moderated a bit, but actually in substitution, we now have scooters. So if you start adding scooters to the picture, it's still going very vertical. What that points to, though, is that at some point it's going to reach, a, like any desk or a saturation. The question is, though, how high? So I was toying with this a year ago, and I was thinking about, you know, is, is the limit 300 million global, right? And the 300 million micro vehicles. Why 300 million? Well, Good question. I, it could have been higher, but the car fleets, by, by the way, are one to one point two billion, depending whether you include certain classes like trucks. And there are still debates as to whether it could go higher to two billion, for example, because emerging markets. 
But that fleet, that's the global car fleet, okay? And it's taken a century to get there. And, and does it make sense that we, we go to the same level? Could we go beyond that level? But because it's shared, naturally, you don't need one-to-one. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's going to be less than that. So that was the first point is like, it's going to be less than cars. There are three million is about a quarter of the, of the global car fleet. And that was kind of one of the guesses I had to make. So that was one of the things. So this is mostly to, to sort of impress upon people that there's a huge fleet out there that's going to get to be built, number one. And by the way, that is going to last in the field only a couple of years. So that's going to have a huge replacement. A lot rate. of turnover. A lot of turnover, just similar to the phone business. The phone, by the way, global phone install base is some, something close to, I guess, $4 billion now. I don't know exactly. But that's for almost like one-to-one for people. But anyway, so so that's always the first analysis. It's now what I'm focused on is trying to, like I said, measure the number of trips, the number of dollars, the number of miles, and the number of minutes that will be consumed on these platforms. And by the way, I'm, I'm focusing on the word platform here because although these vehicles may seem like dumb phones, eventually they're going to become more like smartphones. And then there'll be a platform story. We're, it's not clear what it's going to be. We didn't know about Facebook when the iPhone was launched as far as that being a business model for social media. We didn't know that that would become a killer app essentially for phones. And we don't quite know today what the killer app is going to be for these these vehicles. But I think they'll have as much intelligence on board as, as a phone does. So something will get written for it and then it'll be a network app. So anyway, so so back to this. So we're going to see platforms. We're going to see metrics. You remember when the internet was young, it was about clicks. Then it became about impressions. Then it became about... God knows how, what are the metric we're looking at uh, today, you know, active users. So now same questions are going to be put forward for this. And you, you, you tie a metric to a revenue, do- uh, you know, figure, but, uh, you know, that revenue is going to shift over time. Right now it's like, okay, I'm, I'm using the vehicle to get A to B, but what if it's going to have more value to me at some point? It could be exercise. That's trivial. It could be social. Hard to see how, but it might be social. It could be commercial as well, shopping and other things that you're going to get monetized through this thing. So it could go really crazy on the app side. So anyway, I'm saying there's four metrics that are going to be interesting, at least from the utility side. It's just like how many miles? Again, if if you analyze electric cars, you're analyzing cars sold, but maybe you should be measuring miles. Maybe you should be measuring dollars, you know, because in the shared environment, that's what matters, Right. You know, that's why the, the mental model has to change. You know, we should be looking at shared, the, the shared car business and measuring what is the percent of all rides that normally are taken, are taken by, by you know, in a vehicle, not the one you own. Okay, that's an interesting question, right? It turns out to be a very low number right now. Mm-hmm. But that's what you should be aiming to drive up, right? And so I'm thinking about these things and it's kind of what are the right metrics? Again, one of the things Christensen taught me is like, when you study a problem, what you measure is going to drive your thinking as an analyst, it's not going to be assumed that what's being measured today is the right measure. You need to understand what the real value and the job to be done and all that and measure that one. So, yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now. And, and so looking at S-curve for vehicles, looking at, at potential S-curve for all these other quantities that I mentioned, and not yet looking quite at who the victims are. They will be there at some point, but right now, I think most people are still trying to get this thing off the ground. And there's even a longer term story, a lot of truly kind of maybe this is where the sort of ver- virtue of the whole system it lies is that it will eventually take a lot of CO2 out, you know, and, and, 
And if we if this is as big a success as I expect it will be, it really will make an impact environmentally. I'm not driving towards that as a goal. I think it's a worthy goal, but let's make sure that it's economically sustainable. And then it'll if it is, then it just takes off, and then it, it's a it's a virtuous cycle. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Horace. I think we covered a lot of good ground here. You know, the key takeaways for me is if you're a car, you know, most of our listeners are probably in the U.S. Um, if you're a car user, micromobility is is hard to grok and hard to appreciate in terms of impact. You know, we're used to driving in the rain. We're used to driving, you know, 50-mile commutes. And this thing doesn't seem like it would make a huge dent, if you will, in the transportation system. The main thing I'm taking away from this discussion is do not look at the way transport is done today and measure the impact that micromobility will have it on that. There will be a latent demand creation that is extremely non-intuitive and hard to quantify in the beginning, just like with the smartphone. Nobody imagined that smartphone ASPs would go up over time. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, water running uphill. Uh, But that happened. And and the iPhone, you know, succeeded in large part by creating a new use case that wasn't existent before. So it sounds like the upside for this is the new value creation at the bottom uh, for these low mile dist- uh, trips could be so high that it could actually make up, who knows, uh, half, maybe less than half or even more than half the the current uh, size of the transportation market. And that's why people should pay attention. Obviously, we pay a lot of attention to cars, to electrification, to autonomy. But this from a disruptive vector is something that people really should pay attention to. And it's been great to, to learn it. From Thank you, James. Thank you, Sam. So, it feels like we've touched on a lot of topics, but there's still hours and hours more to discuss. You actually have a podcast that talks right. about it. Yeah. So the podcast is is Micromobility Podcast and it's on the 5x5 network and you can come uh, and check it out. We've got about a dozen or so shows done. Gets into all of this and a lot of glory, glorious history. Also, there's a, I mentioned my my the conference we're, we're setting up in California and it's going to be in the Bay Area and Richmond actually. And it's going to be January 31st. So check it out on micromobility.io. And where can people find the, the rest of your work, Horace? Oh, my work is uh, on asimco.com. And again, these podcasts mainly nowadays. And on Twitter, at asimco. I write a lot. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, Horace. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.